So I guess the main lesson that I would draw from the California experience is that yeah, sort of government-designed markets in some respects is almost an oxymoron. And they tried to create a structure that looked like textbook competition, but they put constraints on it that made you know the market that they created you know extremely vulnerable to adverse shocks. So that's the the, the main lesson that I would draw is uh, yeah, trying to be too clever by half in designing a market is frequently a recipe for disaster. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities, and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to A Smarter Way on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Craig Perron, Professor of Finance and Energy Markets Director of the Global Energy Management Institute at the Bauer College of Business at the University of Houston. We'll be discussing the European cap on natural gas prices and smarter ways to deal with energy shortages and high energy prices. Hello, Craig. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hi, nice to be back. It's great to start the year off with you. I know before the holidays, the European Union agreed on a natural gas price cap that will go into effect on February 15th. You know, since then, it's been extremely warm in Europe, and that's greatly reduced the demand for natural gas and lowered prices, making the price cap less relevant perhaps in the near term. And while it's very fortunate that Europe isn't having a cold winter right now, hoping for favorable weather isn't the basis for sound energy policy, and neither are price caps. So I'd like to take this respite from this kind of ongoing European energy crisis to explore with you why price caps are not the right answer and what could be a smarter way to deal with high energy prices. If you'd forgive a little bit of the extended preamble here for the benefit of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the the price cap in Europe, I'd like to start off hearing your thoughts on the nature of the price cap. And it has a number of features that seem unique to me, though you may have seen features like these before. And these include, of course, you know, the cap is triggered if prices exceed a certain amount, in this case, 180 euros per megawatt hour over three days at the Dutch title transfer facility, the TTF, on the front month contract, which serves as Europe's benchmark right now. Now, interestingly, the TTF price must also be 35 euros a megawatt hour higher than a reference price based on existing LNG price assessments for three days. And once triggered, trades would not be permitted on the front month, three month or front year TTF futures contracts at a price more than 35 euros per megawatt hour above the reference LNG price. So when I look at it, you know, the price cap is being imposed by a region that's highly reliant on imports. It's on futures contract prices, not just physical market transactions. And the price cap is a spread to another market, in this case, an LNG reference price. So you're capping a previously liquid market like TTF to an illiquid market based on only a price assessment. So, you know, looking at these features, what do you make of this structure? Well, so first of all, a lot of it is unique. In some respects, it's like a limit up kind of structure. 
you know, limit up and limit down are not uncommon on futures markets, uh, price limits, uh, but usually they're based on daily price movements as opposed to a level over a three-day period. The main unusual feature is what you noted is it's basically in addition to being triggered by the flat price, it's also triggered by a basis, a spread. And I'm not aware of any other similar sort of price gap. But overall, my assessment of this is the following. You know, it's sort of an example of sort of the political dysfunction and disarray in Europe in the sense that there was obviously a group of countries that wanted sort of a traditional hard cap on gas prices in order to reduce energy prices to consumers. And that shocked and horrified, particularly the Germans and the Dutch, who realized that uh, such a traditional price cap would wreak havoc and lead to shortages and outages. And so that this was sort of a classic giraffe being a horse negotiated by committee sort of mechanism where they put in place a price cap But there were so many sort of caveats and requirements that it will be unlikely to be triggered and it wouldn't have even been unlikely to have been triggered even if the weather hadn't been so uh, favorable to them. And on the one hand, it sort of recognizes, if you read the underlying document, their justification, you know, sort of it, it reflects economic realities, but at the same time, it tries to deny them. It's a very odd beast, and again, just as, as it looks like this, uh, the classical result of a political compromise, particularly in a in a jurisdiction, the European Union, which is highly fractured, uh, particularly on energy issues. I like that look at it as a you know being designed by committee, and just say a, a giraffe is a horse <laughs> designed by committee because it does have that look of like almost you know you have to ask yourself is it designed to be ineffective? Correct. Sounds like it so certainly was part of the outcome. And I want to talk to you about some of the perhaps unintended but entirely predictable consequences. You know, exceptionally warm weather may keep the cap from coming into play this winter. But caps create shortages when they do come into play, when they do bind and when they are effective. And I was curious in your experience, you know, when the price isn't allowed to go up to balance supply and demand, obviously there's some other way people have to get rationed out of the market. Right. And how does that typically happen? Is it first come, first serve, or does it become a political decision at that point? You know, in the absence of a political decision, it usually becomes first come, first serve, or basically market participants themselves make a sort of ad hoc judgments as to who's going to get the stuff and who isn't. And the chaos that typically results from that kind of process typically results in politicians and regulators coming in to intervene with a more formal rationing scheme. But you know, what's interesting, yeah, and again, this is sort of a representation of the, the political compromise involved. As you noted, the price cap applies to futures, but it explicitly, if you read the underlying document, does not apply to sort of the day ahead mechanism and the spot price or the cash price mechanism where actual physical supplies are allocated. So what you could have is this sort of weird outcome is that the futures cap could be hit and then cash prices could soar way above that. 
And so basically what it would do is it would shut down the futures market, but it would still rely on the the physical market and particularly the day ahead market, the short term market in order to allocate physical supplies. And I, I can guarantee you if that happens, that would just lead to another entire freak out in Europe, yeah, that the price cap isn't working, it's not really containing prices, yeah, on and on and on. So it's, uh, yeah, again, it's just a very odd beast. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up some of those complications because you know, I think you just pointed out that it, it binds on the futures, but not necessarily the cash underlying market. Also, the fact that it's based on this differential, that there's a spread right. component. And all this to me suggests that some clever trader could make a fortune by you know manipulating some of these complications in this structure. And I'm curious, like when you look back historically, do you tend to see more manipulation occurring when you've got price caps or complicated structures like this in place? Well, yeah, so that's a, yeah, interesting that you mentioned the word manipulation because I wrote a book on manipulation. Uh, in the introduction to the book, I said, uh, you know, had the devil's dictionary of finance definition of manipulation, which is uh, something that somebody does that caused me to lose money. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, manipulation is a, a phrase that's frequently used quite promiscuously and imprecisely just to basically to demonize things that don't people don't like. And in the price structure context and the price control context, in particular, price controls that don't apply uniformly, that brings to mind what happened in California in the California electricity crisis of more than 20 years ago. At that time, Enron and other energy merchants were accused of manipulation. There were cases brought in front of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which resulted in fines being levied for manipulation. And a lot of the so-called manipulative strategies that Enron and others engaged in were really ways of exploiting the opportunities created by price caps. So basically what California did was cap prices within California but then said, hey, if you import energy, that can be at an open market price. So what entities like Enron allegedly did is that they schedule electricity to be exported out of California and then imported back again. So there was no physical flow of electricity, but they were able to export, buy it at the cap price in California, export it, and then schedule it for an import at an uncapped price and make a lot of money. And so whenever you impose price controls, essentially you can't fix the relative prices in the market such that such arbitrage opportunities will not be available. And highly motivated traders, they will find any arbitrage opportunity that's available. So it's guaranteed that if you if you put a, a you know differential on you know, so you cap one market and don't cap another market that people will try to figure out ways to exploit that in order to make money. And whether you want to call that manipulation <laughs> or not depends probably. We don't, we don't, I probably uh, in poor form introduced a term that has legal aspects as well to it. Yeah, so yeah. sorry about yeah. that. And thank you for treading no, lightly. I, I, I understand. Well, I, so one of my favorite quotes is that there's a cotton broker that was uh, 
brought and hauled in front of the Senate committee in the 1920s, and he was accused of manipulating the market. Then he rather drolly replied, I won't try to imitate the East Texan uh, accent, but he says, in, in his experience, the word manipulation was used to describe any practice that does not suit the person speaking at the moment. So, uh, <laughs> Seems fair enough. And I want yeah. to come back to the California experience. I think that's so important. And you have such a great perspective on it. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously part of the political appeal of price caps is their immediate impact on high prices. Okay, we're gonna right. we're gonna do something about the bad thing. But they also create damage to how markets function over time, which often isn't right. considered in the, the heat of the moment. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on how much damage can price caps like this do to how markets function over time? In particular, you know, it's been reported that futures exchanges, exchanges like ICE and EEX may relocate or withdraw from the market altogether in response to the price cap. And I was curious for your thoughts on how much does this potentially damage market infrastructure? Yeah, it potentially damages market infrastructure very much. And perversely, it could deprive market participants or limit market participants' access to the very kinds of tools that are intended to allow them to manage price risk. And so particularly the, in some respects, I would characterize it as the discriminatory application of these price limits to the futures market basically makes it more likely that futures markets will not develop or they will limit their liquidity. So for example, hey, am I going to enter into a futures position, let's say as a speculator, essentially providing risk-bearing capacity to other market participants, if basically somewhere along the line when that transaction is going to turn out to be profitable, basically I'm not going to be allowed to profit from it. And so I think that even if ICE and EEX uh, you know, continue to operate in the market, I think that this will have uh, detrimental impacts on liquidity and uh, make it costlier for market participants to manage their risk. So, you know, it's one of those no good deed goes unpunished uh, sorts of things. Yeah. And I was really surprised, you know, coming back once again to the application of the cap to the, the futures contracts, including not only the front month, but the three month and the one year, thinking of the distortions that creates and trying to hedge when a cap may or may not apply to something that's right. like a year long futures contract. Right. Is. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to take it back to California because you've got a great historical experience with the price caps on energy there and their role in that California power crisis of, as you said, wow, 20 years ago, 2000, 2001. How does yeah. what we're seeing in Europe now compare to the price controls in California? And how are those price controls related to the power crisis? There's always a bit of a chicken and egg thing between the price controls and the crisis. So partially for the things that we talked about earlier, there are so many uh, sort of escape valves and caveats and requirements uh, that must be met before the European price caps will take effect that they're less likely to be binding than what happened in California, where they definitely were binding. Yeah, so here's the similarity. The similarity was is that the high prices in Europe and the high prices in California were both as a result of fundamental supply and demand conditions. Now, in California, they might have been exacerbated by you know, sort of the exercise of market power by some market participants, but most of the, you know, the problems in California were fundamentals driven, similarly, the situation in Europe today. 
And again, since time immemorial, I mean, again, you can go back to the Code of Hammurabi where there were price controls imposed then. Whenever there are high prices on goods that are you know, sort of salient to individuals, whether it be food or energy or things of that nature, the sort of the default political response is to impose price controls. And then there are all the baleful consequences of binding price controls you follow in the wake of their imposition. So I think what California demonstrates is the, you know, sort of the negative consequences of binding price controls. And the two things that I would note are, first of all, it does not address and in fact exacerbates the fundamental shortage of supply that is uh, driving the higher prices. So it, it makes the problems worse, not better. So one thing you saw in California was is that the imposition of price controls led to the exit of some capacity from the market, which actually exacerbated the shortages situation. The other thing is, is that it creates, as we just discussed, the incentive and the opportunity to expend real resources to try to figure out ways to profit from these price controls. And particularly when you're talking about in California as part of a regional market and imposing price controls and just part of that, or if you talk about Europe where they're part of a world market for natural gas and you're trying to just impose price controls on part of that, that creates all sorts of opportunities to game the system, if you will, in order to make money. And expecting market participants not to game it, I mean, that's just, yeah, sort of traders like money. And, you know, if you leave money lying around on the sidewalk, they're going to pick it up. You know, they're going to expend real resources to do that. So I think that the, you know, the California situation is sort of, it should have been a cautionary tale as to the negative consequences of imposing price controls, particularly ones that bind. Right. If you had to pick like one or two lessons to take away from the California experience, what would those be? Yeah, so the joke I like to say about California was is that they wanted to restructure their electricity markets in their worst way, and they did. They succeeded. Yeah, so basically going in, in the mid-1990s, California restructured its electricity markets in an attempt to create a, you know, sort of a competitive market. But the way that they designed the system was completely counterproductive. So the main takeaway is that they, they tried to create a competitive market or what appeared to be a competitive market, but they imposed so many constraints that it was destined to run into serious problems in the event of adverse fundamental supply and demand conditions. And within a few years after their restructuring, these, uh, these conditions appeared and the entire system broke down. So I guess the main lesson that I would draw from the California experience is that yeah, sort of government designed markets in some respects is almost an oxymoron. And they tried to create a structure that looked like textbook competition, but they put constraints on it that made you know, the market that they created you know, extremely vulnerable to adverse shocks. So that's the, the, the main lesson that I would draw is uh, you know, trying to be too clever by half in designing a market is frequently a recipe for disaster. I like that. And I wanted to ask you, you know, I think people who have been around markets long enough know that price caps are counterproductive. And yet, 
you know, typically every time, as we said, there's an energy crisis, price caps is uh, one of the first go-to tools in the the policy tool bag. So I was wondering, you know, what do you think is a better way or a smarter way to deal with these energy crises? Well, yes, part of the problem is, is that the responses occur when it's really too late to do anything. So Europe's energy situation is the consequence of a variety of different decisions that have been made over recent decades. You know, so for example, if you look in Germany, uh, you know, closing down nuclear power plants. Uh, if you look at Europe generally, it's relying on Russian imports of gas. Yeah, so uh, you know, a lot of the the price controls are the result of decisions that were made for a variety of political reasons that just clash with reality under certain conditions. And so, what's happened in Europe, in some respects, is rather you know, extreme. You know, war in Ukraine leading to the loss of of Russian gas and so on. But you have to remember that a lot of what's happened in Europe with gas predates the actual invasion. So you can actually go back to September 2021 is when the first price spikes in Europe took place, which is about, you know, what, five or six months before the the Russians invaded Ukraine. Yeah. So a lot of this is the result of sort of decisions made for various political reasons, like Angela Merkel panicking over the Fukushima nuclear problem in Japan and deciding to shut down all nukes in Germany. And so I think that the the basic lesson is that it's yeah, short-sightedness in making decisions, particularly about energy, which is a very infrastructure-intensive, long-term cycle, investment cycle-intensive industry, making short-sighted decisions that later come to bite them in sensitive places and that leads to panic responses like, oh, my God, what are we going to do when we can't really do anything that will address the problem? Well, I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's always the problem, right? Like the first rule of uh, dealing with an energy shortage is don't create an energy shortage. Right. Yeah. And, and I think we can all be grateful that, you know, the weather is keeping the, the issue in Europe from becoming a real humanitarian crisis so far right. this winter. So we can all be grateful for that. But I want to ask you the, I guess, the hardest question before I let you go, which is, given that we're going to find ourselves in these problems, once a policymaker finds themselves in a crisis, you know, even if it's of their own making, what do you think they should do at that point? So it's one of those kind of things is that they're expected to do something and it's politically suicidal to say, well, there's really nothing that we can do. Yeah. So there's a quote by Hayek something to the effect that, you know, it's the uh, unpleasant task of economists to tell people that there are things that they can't control. And that's definitely a lesson that politicians don't want to hear. And so it would take uh, you know, incredible political fortitude and intestinal fortitude to come up and say, hey, look, you know, we're reaping what we sowed over the last 10, 20, 30 years in terms of our energy policy. In the short run, there's really nothing that we can do to ameliorate the situation, except, you know, for example, like some things that the Germans have done, say, hey, let's let's embark on a uh, crash expansion of uh, gasification, LNG import uh, infrastructure. 
you know, sort of say, hey, the fundamental problem is this. Here's what we can do about that in the short run. Be realistic about what we can do. Thanks again to Craig Perong. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, A Smarter Way, with guest Keith McCullough, founder and CEO of Hedgeye Risk Management. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability, ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees, and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week.